Now, last week, we left it on a cliffhanger, if you remember. We read verse 30 and left Paul dropped down in front of the Jerusalem council. And then to be continued came up across the screen with a dot, dot, dot. And you'll remember he gets back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. He's got an offering that he wants to bring to the Jewish Christians there on behalf of the Gentile Christians. James, who is the pastor of the church there, loves that idea. He also says, look, all the Jewish Christians have heard false rumors about you that you hate Moses and you hate your country and your culture and all that. So why don't you go into the temple and pay for the sacrifice of some men that are finishing up a vow and you can go through the purification ritual and that way it'll it'll help build a bridge. Paul thought that was great, but he runs into some of those same folks from Ephesus that had been starting riots when he was preaching and he sees them in the temple too. And they start a riot again and he's half arrested, half put into protective custody by the Romans, he gets a chance to speak and share his testimony to the mob, really, but the second he says the word Gentiles, they take off their cloaks and they start throwing dust in the air, away with him, and he just avoids being tortured in order to find out what he's done wrong by reminding the Roman tribune that he's a Roman citizen and he's not permitted to be flogged without a trial. And so, The tribune, who is in charge of the thousand men, the cohort that oversaw the temple and was in the Antonio Fortress, he says, okay, we got to get to the bottom of this. So he takes Paul to the Jerusalem council, and this is where we're going to find him today. I had intended this study to go through chapter 23 and 24, but as I was preparing and praying and thinking about this, I was reminded of how important the lesson is that we learn in these first 11 verses. And I decided that this was going to be where we would focus today. So we're only going to do the first 11 verses, take our time a little bit. Because if there's one thing that we should learn from the book of Acts, there's a lot of things. But if there's one thing we should take, it should be the importance of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's really what it's all about, is the church starting in Jerusalem and then taking the good news throughout the world. And in Acts 22, when Paul is giving his testimony, he's not just defending his own honor and his own name, but he's defending the gospel itself. And this is what he's going to do here before the council as well. We shouldn't pass this up without taking the time to again remind ourselves that it is our responsibility to do what the Christians in the book of Acts did. They're held up as an example for us to follow, that we've got to take the gospel to the world too. And I have not lived very long, but I do remember that when I was growing up and when I was much younger, there was a fiery emphasis on evangelism in the church. That was a big deal, that we needed to be learning techniques to speak to people and getting out in the streets and the, the importance of getting the good news out. And I don't know when or where, I'm not that smart, but somewhere it flipped. And now... Street evangelism, door-to-door, talking to your friends about Jesus has been lumped into the category of embarrassing things Christians used to do, which is not a good thing. I think you all understand that. We're much more likely to make fun of hokey and messed up evangelistic techniques than we are to actually get out there and do the right thing. But this passage teaches us that we have a mandate to deliver God's message. You know what a mandate is? Remember your teacher would say, it is mandatory. Or your boss said, there is a mandatory meeting today. And it reminds us, not only do we have a mandate to proclaim that message, but that we have to stand firm on that message when we're getting battered back and forth by the world, which will inevitably happen. So I want to do something weird. I want to jump to the last verse of this section and read it and talk about that for a while and then come back to the beginning and go through it again. So if you look at verse 11 with me, this is after Paul has been before the council. It did not go well, is the short version. But it says, The following night, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, that is, stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Testifying, bearing witness. That's that word marturo. It means to be a martyr or a witness. Now, we all know that the church is a preaching organization. 
We exist to share the message, to preach, to get the news out. The trouble is, everybody, including people in the church, has a different opinion about what that message should be. Have you noticed? Everybody feels free to weigh in on what the church should be saying or should not be saying. People will say things like, the church has got to change with the times and realize we can't preach the same message we used to. Or sometimes folks come up and say, the church has changed way too much. We've got to get back to the good old message and preach it the way that we used to. Everyone's got a good idea. And there are usually good ideas. Very rarely is somebody going to come in and tell us we've got to preach a bad thing. We've got to preach wickedness, although that does happen. But more often than not, it's something good that is less than the gospel that people put forward as the thing they're most passionate about that we've got to be preaching. Oftentimes, it's a subset of the gospel. I remember a few years ago, everybody was all up in arms about human trafficking, which is an important thing. It's still important. But that was the thing in the church. And there were people that were going around saying that if you're not talking about this, then you're failing to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, look back, there, there were other things that people were saying. During the various wars, there have been people that say, we've got to speak up on this side or that side of the war. Now, things like racial injustice or things related to the, the pandemic, like if you're not talking about that, then you don't really have the gospel. It, it's no different than it's always been. Everybody's got an opinion. And all those are, are okay. They're all good things, and maybe they're things we should address. But our good ideas are not determinative for what we're supposed to be talking about. It's supposed to be subservient to the Word of God. How about we let Jesus tell us what he wants his church to be talking about? And he says it to Paul right there in verse 11. I love the way the ESV translates this. You have testified about what? The facts about me. Now, the Greek there doesn't have the word facts. It says the things or the plural noun. It doesn't really give us a noun there. About me. You have testified to these about me. To these what? These facts about me. I think that's a great translation. Because that's what the Christian message is. Our job is to proclaim the facts about Jesus. Well, that seems so basic. You're absolutely right. Staying basic is a really good way to keep yourself out of trouble. The Christian message comprises the facts about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. This is something we all need to remember. Paul said, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul said, We proclaim not ourselves, not our priorities, not the things we're interested in or passionate about, but Jesus Christ. And people will do backflips to take their favorite issue and hitch it to the wagon of Jesus Christ. But it's written right there. Our evangelistic efforts need to be proclaiming the facts about Jesus. If we're not proclaiming the facts about Jesus, it might be something, but it's not evangelism. You're not proclaiming the gospel. We're communicating what God has done on the earth. That's what evangelism is. There's good news, you angelos, good message, good news about what God has done. We still hear this today. Why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't God step in? If the world is so evil, why hasn't God done anything about it? Well, I've got good news. He did do something about it. He stepped in with his son Jesus. So if we're going to understand what our message is, we need to know the facts about Jesus Christ. So you thought what I said before was basic. We're going to look at the seven, I, it's not a magic number, it's just the number that I think covered it the best. Seven facts about Jesus Christ that we need to be proclaiming. This is our message. And you know all of these, which is good. Say, so, well, this is always easy. The kids can learn that. Yes, you're right. Jesus even said, right, childlike faith. So simple the kids can get it. And sometimes we hear the simplicity of it and we say, well, there's got to be more to it than that. Not really. The first fact about Jesus is his birth. And it's not just the fact that Jesus was born or even the fact that he was born of a virgin. It's the fact that he was the son of God in eternity past, co-equal with God, God very God, the old creed says, and he was born to the Virgin Mary. He was born at a place in time. God came to earth. 
We've got to understand that. We've got to proclaim that. Because the minute you deny that or you leave that out, Jesus is on the plane with just about anybody else who ever had any good ideas. Why should I listen to Jesus? Because he's the son of God. God became flesh. John chapter 1, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only son of the father. That's the first fact about Jesus, that he's not just a man. He is the son of God and he was born in time to the Virgin Mary. And number two, his life. Okay, there was a special baby that was born. That's great. Well, it didn't end there. He lived a sinless life. He was perfect, which only makes sense if he was the son of God, which he was. But he also taught us the truth about God, that he was a prophet, he was a healer, he was a miracle worker, that his life was significant and it flipped this country upside down that was so stuck in its traditions and so stuck in its political obsession. He came in and with just three years flipped it on its head. His life, that he proclaimed what true righteousness is. He taught us repentance. He taught us love. He lived out that love. His life, he was the son of God made flesh, and he lived a sinless life and taught us the truth about God. And the third fact about Jesus is that his death, he was crucified. He was nailed to a cross unjustly at the hands of wicked men. This is really where we get to the center of it all, isn't it? He was born of a virgin, great. He lived a sinless life, but they killed him. They put him to death. He wasn't a prophet who was exalted and, and ran wild over the world with his followers. They put him to death. They nailed him to a tree. Jews and Gentiles couldn't agree on anything, but they agreed to come together and crucify Jesus Christ. No one group or one people has the blame for it. We all share the blame. Jesus died on the cross and he did not deserve it. That matters. It's also talking about facts here. That is as historically verifiable a fact as anything you've ever heard. Jesus died on the cross. And this is the money right here. The fourth fact about Jesus is that he rose from the dead. His resurrection, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. This is really the centerpiece of it all. He's not dead anymore. And it's not some weird emotional, well, he's alive in our hearts, like the Lion King. He lives in you, and every time you do what he taught you, no, he's actually alive. He rose from the dead bodily. He came out of that tomb, and they saw him. They held him. They talked to him. They ate with him. Paul says he demonstrated through many infallible proofs that he was alive. He rose from the dead. It was God's way of, among other things, putting his stamp of approval on Jesus Christ. This is my guy. This is the one you need to listen to. He said it at his baptism, right? This is my beloved son. Hear him. He said it at the transfiguration. And he said it loudest of all at the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. Well, can't we just accept the nice things that he said? No. Because lots of people say nice things. Jesus rose from the dead. He has authority behind his words. The fifth fact about Jesus, he ascended to heaven. Now, this is one we often don't include in our evangelistic outreaches, but read through the book of Acts again. They make a big deal out of that because it's not just he died and rose again. He has now been given authority at the right hand of the Father. He has given, he said in Matthew 28, all power, all authority. He is the judge. He's the coming king that he's still alive, that he's still preparing to return, which is the sixth fact, his return. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. He's not going to just stay in heaven forever, and that's not our little way of saying, oh, yeah, he's alive, but he's in heaven now. And that's our way of escaping the fact that we don't know where his body is. We as Christians insist that he's coming back. He's coming to judge the living and the dead, that he will set up a kingdom and rule in righteousness. That's the hope that we have. And that he will punish the wicked forever in hell. Now, so far, this is great, but how does this affect me? Number seven is the most important fact about Jesus, his grace. That he offers forgiveness for sins and eternal life. To those who repent and put their faith in him, who say, I want the death of Jesus to count for my penalty for the sins that I've committed. 
And that if you believe and call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. His love has been demonstrated at the cross. And he offers forgiveness of sins. I guess you could say the relief from guilt in this life. But the hope of eternal life after death. Those seven facts about Jesus, his birth, not just his birth, but eternity past leading to his birth. His life, he was sinless and taught us the truth about God. Number three, his death. He died on the cross unjustly as a sacrifice for sin. Number four, his resurrection. He rose from the dead. He didn't stay dead. He couldn't stay dead. He conquered death, and now he can offer it to us. Number five, his ascension. God has placed him at his right hand with all authority. Number six, he's coming back one day to exercise that authority. He will judge the living and the dead, eternal life or eternal death. And number seven, his grace. He offers you the opportunity to participate in his life and to receive his forgiveness. And at any point in that message, there's also the fact that sin is real. That we are not on the right side in this fight and in this story but that the Lord is so gracious and so loving, he's willing to draw us to himself. Summarized in a verse you've known since you were a little kid, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the Christian message. That's what we preach. Not ourselves, and the things that concern us and what we're worried about and the things that are important to our culture, but Christ, something that transcends culture and transcends personality and transcends ideas and parties and countries, something that applies to everyone, not ourselves, but Christ. Yes? Amen? Amen. The facts about Jesus Christ. And we do need to insist that they are facts. Well, if you believe this, it will really change your life. That's true, but there's more to it than that. If it's not real, according to the Apostle Paul, it doesn't mean anything. Does it really matter if Jesus rose? Yes, it does. I've wasted my whole life preaching about it if he didn't rise from the dead. Paul said, we're the most pathetic people the world has ever known if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If our message is anything but those facts about Jesus Christ, you're preaching something, but you're not preaching the gospel. You're not preaching the message that God has given to you. And if it is not the message God has given, it might be important, it might be beneficial, but it is not the purpose of the church. Well, that really narrows it down. It sure does. It was this that Paul testified to in Jerusalem. This is what he would testify to later in Rome. And this is what has to become the driving force of our lives. That's the message. This is what all the book of Acts has been about. God did this. Now go tell everybody. Now that go tell everybody part is what we're going to look at now. We understand the message, but you need to understand. The message is not just our collective responsibility. You are individually responsible to spread that message. You have a mandate. It is mandatory. I used to get smart in school, and I would say, is the essay portion of the test mandatory, or is it optional? My teachers would say, it's mandatory. You have a mandate to do your homework. You have a mandate to show up for work on time. And you and I have a mandate to deliver that message that we just described to the world, to testify to the facts about Jesus Christ. Well, isn't that your job, Tyler? You're the pastor, after all. My job is to... Show up and make it possible for you to proclaim the message. (laughs) Not exactly. It is the work of every Christian, including yourself. It is your responsibility. It's my responsibility to equip you for that, Ephesians chapter 4. My job is to get you ready for that, to help you along the way. If you're unsure if that's true or not, let's look at the Great Commission's And I did say commissions. There's only one commission, but Jesus gave it four times. Every time the gospel was written down in scripture, it ends with the mandate to go and share the message. Matthew 28, you know this one, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
That's important. What he's going to say next matters because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. With that authority, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. <laughs> all authority. His way of saying, as king of the world, I command you to preach the gospel. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. He said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Go and proclaim the gospel, he said. Luke 24, 46-48. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. The message is going to go out, fellas, and it's up to you to get it out there, Jesus says. And the last one, John chapter 20, verse 21. After his resurrection, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So you don't get to say, well, I mean, I'm not an apostle. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a preacher. I'm not, a, I'm not Jesus. Jesus said, you have been sent in the same way he was sent. Do you get it now? God did everything that was necessary to bring salvation. He did everything that was needed to bring forgiveness and eternal life. People have the right to know about it. Say, so, well, how is the world going to find out that this happened? You is how the world is going to find out. The book of Acts is full of this. This is what the church did. And I hope what you've been able to notice going through this, it was not just the bigwigs that were doing it. It was the individual Christians taking the gospel around the world. Philip, who brought about that great revival in Samaria and to the Ethiopian eunuch and went up the coastline. They called him Philip the Evangelist. He was no apostle. He was in charge of the widow's distribution. He was in charge of the hospitality team with Stephen and some of these other guys. The Church of Antioch, the most missionary-oriented church in the Bible. They sent out Paul. They sent out Barnabas. They sent out Silas and all the rest of them. That church, it says, was founded by some brothers. We don't even know who started that church because it didn't matter who started that church. It was just Christians doing their job and taking the word out. Every Christian has to deliver the good news. We're all working for the postal service. We've all been given a bag with the gospel in it and say, now go and deliver these letters. You are important in that chain. You are a crucial link in getting the message out because you have a circle of friends that nobody else can reach. You have a family that will not listen to anybody else. You have a business network that is unique to yourself. You maybe have an online community that listens to you and won't much listen to anybody else. You've got connections to people that God wants to utilize to get the gospel out there your neighborhood, your workplace, whatever recreational activities you get into, the baseball teams and soccer teams for your kids, you have that unique opportunity to get the good news out there. It's up to you to tell them. There are people in your life that will only listen to you about this stuff and will not listen to anybody else. Haven't you found that to be true? People that hate God, hate the church, very misinformed about what it means to be a Christian, but they love you, and you get the chance to tell them the truth about God. And a lot of times you tell them the truth, and they say, well, if, if that was what Christians believed, then I'd believe that. Like, that is what we believe. <laughs> Don't believe the hype, man. Believe what the Word says. I'm here to share it with you. And allow me to liberate you from internal debate. So, okay, I know this is important. Am I going to do this or not? And we, we say, I'm, I'm going to go pray about it. You don't have to pray about it. Did the pastor really say that? Yeah, he did. I've had a lot of folks come to me with very serious sin in their life. And I say, well, you got to stop that. Okay, well, I've been praying about it. What are you praying for? You know what ought to be done. Say, hey, pastor, just my, my girlfriend and I have been committing fornication and sleeping together. And I just, it's not good. It's, yeah, you got to stop that. Well, I mean, we're praying about it. You're praying about it? Stop it. Just quit it. I, I know I shouldn't be going out and getting getting drunk every night, but I've been praying. What are you praying for? Stop. Stop going. Well, it's hard. I didn't say it wasn't hard. I said you had to stop. 
And I said, you don't need to pray about whether or not you should. It's the same thing with preaching the gospel. Lord, do you want me to share the word with this person? Yes, there's your answer for the rest of time. Yes. Well, it might not be the right moment. Okay. The answer is still yes. The Lord has told you to do this. The message is not in my hands or in our collective hands, but it's in your hands. You have a responsibility to get it out there. You have the vaccine for the coronavirus in your hands. You have the cure for cancer in your hands. You have the most important news anybody could ever hear that transcends any kind of physical sickness and gets right to the soul of a person. You can't keep that to yourself. We get so mad at some of these pharmaceutical companies that find these amazing miracle drugs and miracle cures, then they jack the price up through the roof. We're like, that's so wrong. If you've got that, you should share it with everybody. Oh, you've got a point there. So what are we doing keeping the message to ourselves? Well, they don't want to hear it. Well, of course not. They don't know Jesus yet. Christ has commanded you to share the gospel. I'm not a good speaker. Neither was Paul. Read your Bible. Well, his letters are so great. Yeah, that's why it was always a disappointment when Paul came to town. <laughs> Read through the Corinthian letters. That's what it says. It's his letters are weighty, but his bodily presence is of no account. <laughs> that's what the Bible says about Paul. He says, I didn't come to you with fancy words of wisdom and lots of cool rhetoric like Apollos did. No shade on Apollos, but that wasn't how Paul did it. He said, I just came and proclaimed the simple truth of Jesus Christ crucified. And there's a wealth of strategies and methods that people will use to get the gospel out there. And, and listen, they're great. If you found one that works for you and gets you out there, great. But those things are only as effective as you actually getting out and talking to people, talking to your friends, going through it and getting the message out there. You don't need to be a defense attorney. That's sometimes where we fall into. Well, what if they start asking me questions about the geological strata of the earth? What does that have to do with Jesus Christ? Well, it's important, and it keeps people from coming to Jesus. Okay, yeah, but cut through that. You've got the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is dividing between bone and, and marrow and soul and spirit. Just get there and get the Word out. Remember our favorite testimony giver in the Bible, the blind man that Jesus healed? I don't know about any of that stuff. I just know that I was blind, and now I see. People come to you, well, what about the history of what the church has done? And I don't know about that. All I know is that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And you must repent. Because people use those things as deflectors, you know. They put up this argument or this theory or some fancy turn of phrase that prevents them from having to think about the gospel. But if you can kind of do one of those swim moves like an offensive lineman, just get right past it and get right to the core, then they're forced to confront it. You're not a defense attorney. You're a witness witness. Share the message. Tell your story. Those seven facts, you could simplify it further if you wanted to. You know it. The kids over there know it. They're learning it. They can proclaim it. You can also proclaim it. And there will be days where people have really difficult things to say. That your job is just to get the message out there. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2 says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth. That's evangelism. Open statement of the truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The most effective evangelist I have found in my life is the one who goes out poorly prepared, but recognizing that they have to do this. Greg Laurie, who is a Calvary Chapel brother and was now a world-famous evangelist and has done the crusades in these big arenas and things like that and has led so many people to Christ. When he first got saved, somebody told him, you've got to get out there and share the gospel because it's your responsibility as a Christian. The first time he ever went out and evangelized, he had a, one of those little tracks in his hand. Asked somebody if he could share Jesus with him on the beach. And he, he tells a story, he said, I held up in front of my face and read it, just read the tract out loud. And I come to the end where it says, now would you like to put your faith in Jesus Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior? And the woman said, yes. And he led her to Jesus right there on the spot. Worst gospel presentation you've ever heard. But it didn't matter. He was just giving that open statement of the truth. New believers are the best evangelists you'll ever meet. 
because they haven't learned to be embarrassed yet. They just get out there and tell people. I've got to tell them. Jesus died on the cross, man. Okay, well, what does that mean? It means that you can be forgiven, and if you don't, you're going to hell. We're like, hey, take it easy. But look, they're the one out there leading people to Jesus, so who are we to talk? We've got to get that back. We can overcomplicate it. Salvation is through simple faith. And then they come to the church, and the maturity process begins, and we work through that. But you don't start math with calculus. You start with 1 plus 1 equals 2. We all have that responsibility. So we know the message, the facts about Jesus. We know the mandate. You have to deliver that message. It's mandatory. As a Christian, it is mandatory to share the gospel. Now, what we're going to look at now, we know that. We know the mandate. We know the message. And I think all of us would agree with that. But we always have a, yeah, but, after that. But it's so hard. Yeah, but this happened. Yeah, but this thing. Yeah, but this question. This person. I I just don't know. Well, this is what we're going to look at going back to verse 1 here in this chapter. The difficulty, as it's said sometimes, is to stay on message. There are a lot of campaign managers telling their candidates right now, stay on message. Don't talk about this stuff over here. You just talk about the one thing that is polling well, and that's all we're going to talk about. being a little silly, but obviously there's some truth to that. As Christians, there's lots of other things. But the most important thing when you're sharing the gospel is the gospel, the good news, the facts about Jesus. And Paul is going to literally be knocked around in an attempt to keep him from sharing the gospel. So let's read these first five verses here. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. This is one of my favorite Paul stories in the whole Bible. He begins his testimony. I have always striven to have a good conscience before God. Whack! He hasn't even said anything yet. He's just basically saying, not guilty, your honor. And Bailiff comes over and cocks him one right across the face. Now this is the high priest Ananias. Ananias, named for Hananiah, which was Shadrach in the Old Testament, did not live up to that name. Ananias, the son of Nedebius, was his name. He was considered by the people in his day and by the tradition that came later as probably the worst high priest Israel ever had. He bought his office as high priest, as they all did. This is after the dynasty of Annas had more or less fallen out of favor with Caiaphas and all those people. But he bought his office, and the reason he got it is because he was a friend and a sympathizer to the Romans. This is like in Nazi Germany having a synagogue ruler who is also an SS officer. It's a very bad situation. He was a violent man, as we can see. they, They sent a delegation to Rome to try to get him deposed because he was acting so poorly. But he was friends with the emperor, so the emperor didn't get rid of him. He ended up dying when the zealots, remember we talked about the Sicarii last week, when they rose up and they rebelled against Rome, he was one of the first ones to go. And he orders Paul to be struck on the mouth in the middle of his testimony, which was not only against rabbinic tradition, but I'm not going to read the passage. Deuteronomy 25 makes it very clear that somebody on trial is innocent until proven guilty. We have the same principle, but they couched it in the language of the Lord has not given you permission to judge people without putting them on trial and and proving it and having two, three witnesses and all that. And so he's over here getting punched in the mouth. The Romans wouldn't even do that. And Paul demonstrates his temper. Read through the book of Galatians if you want to get a feel for Paul's temper. Oh, you foolish Galatians, which... Let's put that in modern English. You stupid Galatians. How stupid can you be to try to go back to circumcision, Paul says. 
There's another part where he says to Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. <laughs> Paul was a godly man, but Paul was also a strong personality. He had to be in order to do the work he was doing. And he calls him a whitewashed wall. This is very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 23, except Jesus called them whitewashed what? Tombs. All nice on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You whitewashed wall. Basically, you're a hypocrite. You're covering up all the mess underneath, cloaking it in the robes of the high priest. You're going to strike me? God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I'm in here, you're trying to judge me according to the law, and you're breaking the law in the process of judging me according to the law. And they have the audacity to be offended at Paul. Don't you know that Exodus 22:28 says that you shall not speak evil of a ruler of the people? Like, he just ordered me to be struck in violation of the law. I get understandably angry and rebuke him in Jesus' name. And you say, you can't talk to him that way. And then Paul gives that puzzling response here where he says, I did not know he was the high priest. What, what's going on here? Is Paul really that thick that he didn't realize that the guy in the high chair was the high priest? And people have come up with all kinds of excuses in order to make this easy on Paul. Well, Paul had trouble with his eyes. He probably couldn't see. doesn't say that, though. Or Paul had been away from Jerusalem a long time. Maybe he didn't know who the high priest was. I also find that very unlikely. So what's going on here? I think the best way to look at this is that Paul is speaking sarcastically here. That's our high priest. Oh, I didn't know he was the high priest. Oh, I wouldn't dare speak evil of a ruler of the people. Oh, no, I would never do that. Why is that? Because Ananias, as we said, he had purchased his office. He had bought it. He was there because Rome had put him there. He was no legitimate high priest. He also was not a descendant of Zadok, which the Old Testament made very clear. They were the only ones permitted to be the high priests. So Paul's like, oh, you're the high priest. Well, that can't be right because the Bible says only the sons of Zadok could be the high priests. I think that's probably what's going on here, something to that degree. But he seems to, in verse 5 there, submit to their double standard. He's like, look, this is the way it's going to go. Fine, we're going to play the game this way. In case you've not learned this for yourself, the enemies of the church will not permit you to get the gospel out easily and plainly. That's how spiritual warfare works. You start to speak and pow, you get punched right across the mouth. I didn't even do anything yet. There will always be opposition to the gospel. Again, if you've ever thought otherwise, allow me to disillusion you. The gospel will always be opposed. And if you're doing God's work, it's only a matter of time until opposition comes. Peter said it in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to what? Devour. So resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter's like, there, there is a very real enemy we call Satan and the devil. There's another problem with us these days. We're too embarrassed to talk about the reality of the devil. And there are some folks that have gone so wild in their weird theories about demons and angels that you kind of want to scoot away and kind of not be in the picture with them, you know? But that doesn't mean that we get to jettison what the Bible says. That there is a real demonic adversary to the preaching of the gospel. And that sometimes when we see unreasonable opposition to the church, we need to recognize that it's not just these people that are doing that, but that there is a demonic influence behind it. And in that moment, your job is not to hate the people that are persecuting, but to recognize that they are just as much victims as they are instruments of Satan and his hordes. Opposition to the gospel is never fair. You know, we always want to get out there and say, no, let's just have a discussion and, and we'll see how the discussion goes. Devil's too smart to play that game. He knows how that goes. He gets you in a room having a real conversation. You're going to come out on top because the gospel has the power of the Holy Spirit behind it, and it's true. So he says, no, we're not going to do that. I'm going to punch you across the mouth the second you start to speak. I'm going to accuse you of being a lawbreaker. 
I'm going to accuse you of violating God's law. And this happens all the time. You start talking about Jesus and immediately people want to say, well, if you believe in Jesus, doesn't the Bible say you're supposed to love everybody? Well, well you say that these people are in sin. How is that love? It's like, are you, you're kidding me, right? And it feels so unfair because it is unfair, but you've got to recognize this is a war. This isn't a nice little gentlemanly fencing match where, you know, everyone's going to follow the rules and there's a referee over here to make sure no one jumps off sides. It's a brawl when it comes to the message of the gospel. And it's very easy for us to become angry. And you switch from the position of preaching to the position of fighting, and you're now a combatant with people around you. Because the devil loves to provoke Christians. He loves to just poke us in the head until we finally turn around and snap at somebody. Get people to say things that are so unfair and so wrong and so untrue and so messed up that we finally snap and yell and we lose our testimony. I'm not saying that's what Paul is doing here, but I think we've all experienced this for ourselves. And then the world will have the audacity to say, see, the fact that you're so unhinged is demonstrating that I don't need to listen to you. Like, you're the one that were smacking me in the back of the head every time I turned around. But just, just learn now that that's how the enemy plays his game. And if you're going to get out there and share the gospel, that is what you're signing up for. So when it happens, you go, just like the Bible said, I must have the right religion. This must be the truth because this is exactly what God said would happen. Look at Paul's example. He's even willing to submit to the indignity of this kangaroo court in order to have the chance to get his message out. He goes, I refuse to dignify this court. I'm going back to the tribune. I'm not saying another word to you people. And he might have been well within his rights as we understand them to do that, but he knew that the message was more important than that. You cannot let yourself be moved off of the message of the gospel because of danger or because of frustration. Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. How well do sheep do in the midst of wolves? Not well is the short answer. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. They're hating us. Well, yeah, they're wolves and you're a fluffy little sheep. You're a soldier. To get out there and, and, and quit the second the battle starts, you're not a good soldier. It always cracks me up that in every war movie, there's always some point where the bullets start flying and the bombs start going off. There's some soldier with a gun and a helmet says, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah, you did. That's exactly what you signed up for. Well, I didn't know they was going to be firing bullets. It's like, you went to war, buddy. What do you think? The same thing with us in the church. Well, they're being so mean. You're, you're a sheep among wolves. You're supposed to be fighting the good fight. You're supposed to be running the race. You can't look at opposition as a sign from God that you're supposed to stop. Because opposition is exactly what Jesus told you to expect. Your mandate is to preach the gospel, and it's more important than your pride. It's more important than your rights. It's more important than your freedom and your job and your money and your family and your reputation. If you're going to be more in love with those things than the gospel, you are going to be ineffective. Like Paul's friend Demas who traveled with him. But then in the last letter, Paul writes, 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, he tells Timothy that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas just was like, you know what? Prison in Rome is where I draw the line, Paul. This is enough. I've, been, I've given my whole life to this, and it's been one beating after another, one trial after another, one calumny raised against me, one lie, one slander after another, Paul. I'm tired of it. I'm done. I'm going home. No one has the right to shut you up in Jesus' name. And I don't just mean by force. That does happen, but it rarely happens. More often than not, it's through intimidation or it's through mockery. If you can be teased out of sharing the gospel, you're signing up for a lifetime of being teased, let me tell you right now. Paul was getting smacked around and accused of things he had not done in a corrupt trial, but he kept going. Why? Because he had a mandate from heaven that he did not have the option to ignore. Lord, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. It's gotten too hard. God's like, did I ask you if you wanted to stop? I adjure you to embrace suffering as a Christian. And I'll, I'll say briefly, not suffering as a loudmouth. 
because that's not the same thing. And there are folks that think it's the same thing. I went to my, my job, and I stood up on my desk, and I screamed about Jesus for an hour and a half, and then my boss told me to get down, and I called him a whitewashed wall, and, and then I lost my job. I'm so persecuted. Well, I don't know if I'd call that persecution so much as you're a loudmouth, or you're always in people's face, or you've got no grace in how you speak to people. You think I can yell them into the kingdom of God, or you think that I can scream louder and now I finally won. There are a lot of evangelists, so-called, that have won the argument but lost the soul, huh? So don't, don't claim you're a loudmouth. If you're a loudmouth anyway, like you're someone like me who likes to talk and likes to argue and likes to get into it sometimes, don't think that, well, if I was advocating for something that was good, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of unleashed to be however I want. No, you're not. Let your speech always be full of grace seasoned with salt, speaking the truth in love, the Bible says. Some of us love speaking the truth. I love telling them what they don't want to hear. People got to hear it. Somebody's got to say it, so I'm going to say it. Are you speaking it in love, though? Well, I love them enough to say it. That's not what that means. <laughs> Sometimes we get really brave online. Like, here I go. I'm going to convert 10,000 people with this really angry message that I posted on Facebook. And you know what happens when people see things like that? They go, oh my gosh, Christians. You ever want to have a really miserable experience? Go find a YouTube video of a sermon or a worship song and go down and start reading the comments. There are some Christians that have not learned that you don't feed the trolls yet. I don't know how we haven't learned that. Someone comes in, and everyone's like, oh, praise the Lord, this is so great, it's so wonderful. And then some 14-year-old atheist comes in and says, God is dead and Christianity is a hoax. And immediately everyone's like, what are you coming around here for anyway? You don't know anything. You're going to hell. The Lord is cooking up the fires for you. And it's like, wow. It's crazy. Is that speaking the truth in love? And then they say, well, I got kicked off YouTube for sharing the gospel. No, you didn't. Get the facts about Jesus to the people who need to hear them. With gentleness, with kindness, with patience, with, with firmness. Sometimes you've got to be firm. Sometimes you've got to insist but sometimes you also need to recognize that us yelling is not going to get us anywhere. Can you picture Jesus yelling and screaming with somebody? The Sadducees come up and Jesus is like right in their face, frothing at the mouth. I don't think so. Because the people that we are speaking to are not our enemies. They're the ones we're trying to reach. They're the ones that need saving. They're the ones drowning in the river. You hand out an oar, someone drowning in the river, the boat flips over and you've got an oar and they, you say, here, grab it. And they say, no, I don't want your oar. You don't whack them over the head with it. So, well, if they don't want it, then they don't deserve it. No, you're trying to save them. You're trying to save their soul. The enemy is the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Not the people. Not even the persecutors. If there were Christians that could be in concentration camps and love their oppressors and abusers enough to forgive them later and lead them to Jesus, then we have no right to talk about how put upon we are that I just can't share the gospel with them anymore. Paul was smacked across the mouth and he continued to preach. We cannot be silent, but we also need to make sure we've got grace. Verse 6 through 10. <laughs> Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so that the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angel or spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks again. This is a condensed story. I am positive these are not Paul's only words here. So Paul is probably going through this, and he's kind of feeling the room out. He realizes, okay, Pharisees, Sadducees. And he appeals to the Pharisees concerning the resurrection. Some people have accused Paul here of trying to stir up trouble in order to get free. I don't think that's what's happening here. But Paul was a Pharisee. 
He believed in the whole Old Testament, miracles, angels, and eternity. We, we hear the word Pharisee and we immediately think negative, and that's because Jesus had a lot of negative things to say to the Pharisees. But his problem with them, if you read through it, was their hypocrisy, not so much their theology. He came at them and he's like, yeah, you guys believe all this stuff, but look at how you're living. And don't think that's because you've got all of this right that you're right before God because your heart stinks. So Paul, who is a Pharisee, most of your New Testament was written by a Pharisee. Isn't that something to think about? He tries to draw them in. He's trying to find common ground with them. He says, look, it's about the resurrection, you guys. And it's probably that the same things they were doing to shut Paul down were the same things the Sadducees would do to shut the Pharisees down. Maybe an angel spoke to him. Oh, would you stop going on about angels? Angels and spirits. This is the real world. We've got to live in it. Stop looking to the distant future somewhere. There's no magic coming to save you. Well, it says in the book of Zechariah, oh, that's your book. I don't believe in that book. I believe in Moses only. And off they go. The Sadducees were a political faction more than anything else. They believed in the here. They believed in the now. They believed in we've got to deal with Rome ourselves and God's not going to help us. They had no interest in doctrine. So the Pharisees take up for him. Probably some of them knew him or had known him at some point. And the room divides into parties. And Paul becomes just another football for the right and the left to fight over. And he has to be removed. The tribune has got to be thinking, these people are crazy. You know this story. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Neither, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. So Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Are you for us? Or for our enemies? Are you for this team or that team? For the red or for the blue? You've got to make a decision. No, I'm here for the army of the Lord. What terminated Paul's trial, what finally derailed his message, was not the hostility of the Sadducees, but the partisanship of the Pharisees. We as Christians constantly find ourselves asked the same question that Joshua was asked. Are you for us? Or for our enemies? Are you pro or are you con? Are you yes or are you no? Which camp are you in? You've got to pick one because if you don't pick, you're a coward. But our answer has to be the same. I'm not, I'm not on either team. I'm on the Lord's team. You say, oh, that's a cop-out. No, it's not. Not if you're sincere about it. And our response needs to be the same that Joshua's was. To get down on our knees and say, what does the Lord require of his servant? We think we understand how the issue is framed. But the Lord actually sees everything. And Jesus was constantly faced with A or B. And he said, those are both bad. I want C. Pay taxes to Caesar or not? Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Hostility will try to take us away from the mandate, but peripheral issues will try to take us away from the message itself. Paul found himself in the middle of a debate over politics, tradition, and theology. And because of that, he was not able to proclaim the good news that superseded all of those things. I told you last week, things were heating up in Jerusalem at this point. They were angry. They were ready to fight against Rome. And in a few short years, they were going to have a revolt and try to cast Rome off. And it would ultimately lead to the destruction of Jerusalem. And Paul shows up talking about the good news. And people are thinking to themselves, Paul... You're so out of touch. There are more important things at stake. Yeah, that might be great, but we've got to deal with the problem right in front of us. And the same thing is true today, isn't it? Where the world is like, okay, yeah, the gospel's great, but what about this, though? What about this problem? What about this issue? What about these people over here? What about what he said? What about... And when we try to say, all I care about is the gospel of Jesus Christ, people roll their eyes and groan and say, well, what good are you anyway? That's exactly what happened to Paul. It's exactly what happened to Jesus. When Christians get off message and start becoming political pundits or start becoming social commentators, what happens is you end up in a camp. 
you end up on a team rather than for the Lord. And you've just lost everybody on that other team that you can't even speak to anymore. And here's the thing. Paul was a Pharisee. Jesus Christ would have agreed with the Pharisees in their doctrine and their theology. This is not saying that you don't make a distinction between people. This doesn't mean that you don't have an opinion. This doesn't mean that you don't have your thoughts about how things should go. But what it does say is that your loyalty is higher than that. And that the gospel transcends all of that. And the gospel might apply, but you have to recognize the difference between an application of the gospel and the gospel itself. Even good things are not the gospel. The gospel is a social disruptor. God took people, millions of people, filled them with the Holy Spirit and sent them out into the world to go and live in the world. And he started out with the Roman Empire. Our country is so terrible right now. Well, we're not building pagan temples with taxpayer money. We're not persecuting the Jews and destroying Jerusalem. We're not permitting polygamy. We're not permitting all kinds of pederastry and all kinds of nasty things. We're not killing Christians in the arena, feeding them to the lions, setting them on fire, cutting their heads off, skinning them alive. And that's the culture God sent them to. And you know what they did to that culture? They turned it upside down. And when that empire fell, you know who was left? The church was left. The church endured. Because the church went past the Romans and went to the barbarians. And the barbarians became Christians. And then whenever people would come in and try to take them over, the gospel would go to them too. And the nations went back and forth and empires rose and fell. But the church kept going. And then we get so saturated with the political climate, we think that that's where the church is supposed to be. You're wrong. That's not our job. Our job is to transform the hearts of people. You know what happened in Rome? So many people got saved that Rome couldn't, couldn't figure out what to do with them anymore. Nobody's going to the temples anymore. People are worshiping Jesus Christ now. They don't want to enlist in the, in the Roman army anymore because they'd have to swear loyalty to Caesar as God and bow down before the idols. And it became such a problem, I said, fine, we're going to stamp them out. We're going to persecute them. But the more they persecuted them, the more the gospel spread until eventually the emperor himself became a Christian. Now, our problem is when we say, that's the goal. We've got to get us a Christian emperor, Christian president, governor, city council, whatever. And then they'll change the laws, and that'll make everything better. I love godly Christian laws, and I pray for godly Christian leaders. But that is not the goal. Because you can have godly Christian rulers and even godly Christian laws, and the hearts of all these people are as dead as they were before. And we've seen it, right? Because the second you you loosen the valve a little bit, you realize that, oh, all these people were, were just primed and ready to start sinning the second we gave them permission. Because if you don't change the heart, it doesn't matter what the law says. But if you change the heart, even if the law is permissive or if the law is oppressive, if the hearts are changed, that will overthrow the law naturally. People say, well, you have to do this. And we say, well, we're not going to do it. You have to bow down and worship Caesar. We're not going to do that. We'll kill you. Go ahead. Send us to heaven. Do us a favor. That's the gospel. There's so much pressure, y'all, and there's always been to be a voice for something other than the cross and the empty tomb. And I've had pressure as a pastor, not directly from anybody here, but from just outside places that your church has got to become an advocate for this team or that team. Pharisees, Sadducees, pick your thing. And I have determined by the grace of God, we're going to continue on the gospel because this nation could collapse. I hope it doesn't, but if it does, we're still going to be here. And there are still going to be people that need Jesus. We could have the best golden age waiting just around the corner for us, or we could be thrown down into some weird, horrible, totalitarian system. The church has been through both of those things before and will endure through that. So you'll excuse me if we're not interested in that. We know that the Lord is sovereign over that. Our mandate is to proclaim the message of the gospel. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he was a former slave ship captain, got saved, became a Christian, and one of the last things he said was, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. That's the message. This might sound weird, but you hear that, and doesn't it just feel right? 
Like, that's where we're supposed to be. The Holy Spirit bears witness to that in your heart. You must not let yourself get drawn into other things that will prohibit your ability to proclaim the gospel. We are stewards of the facts about Jesus Christ, and that's what we preach. You have to stand on the message. And then we come back to verse 11. And the following night, the Lord stood behind him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. How do you think Paul felt after this episode with the Sanhedrin? He desired to preach the gospel to the Jews for years. He finally gets his chance twice, and twice it erupts in an angry mob that doesn't even let him finish. He had failed. Or had he? He goes to bed, and Christ Jesus himself appears to him and commends him for his testimony and gives him his next assignment. Great job, Paul. That was awesome. Great job. They were about to pull me to pieces. He had not seen a single convert. He didn't even finish either sermon. So how could that have been enough for Jesus? Listen carefully here. You are called to be a proclaimer of the message, and it is the Holy Spirit's job to bring about salvation. Let me take that giant weight you've been carrying, lift it off your shoulders, and put it back on the shoulders of Jesus, who's able to bear it. You are not responsible for the number of responses you get. You are responsible to proclaim the message. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, and I won't read it for time's sake, he said, we're like a fragrance when we proclaim the gospel. And to some people, it's a fragrance of death. And to some people, it's a fragrance of life. Some people hear the gospel, and it's the best day of their life because it's changed everything for them. Other people hear it, and by their rejection of it, it declares that they're now headed for hell, for sure. Your message either heralds life or death to the people who hear it. You're not responsible to change that. Your job is to speak the facts about Jesus. If we make ourselves the ones responsible for salvation, we become like what Paul calls peddlers of the gospel. You're swapping. You're making deals. All right, okay, so this price is too high. I got you. That's fine. Well, let's say we, we leave out all this stuff about sexual immorality, but then you come to see Jesus. Okay, you don't have to believe in the second coming. You don't have to believe that God is real, but you can still be part of the team. Do we have a deal? Okay, we've got a deal. It's a peddler of the word of God. Trying to get people in. And that's what happens, right? If you make yourself the one responsible to get a response or a decision, you start doing all kinds of crazy stuff in order to make that happen. You know, people seem to stick around the church longer if we talk about sin less. If we stop talking about blood, then people will stick around. That's the goal, is to keep people around. No, it's not. You're a witness. You're declaring the facts about Jesus. Now, of course, we persuade people. We make earnest appeals. We come back again and again and again, and we keep trying, but we can never compromise. We're not out there trying to get as many signatures on the dotted line as we can. There's no quota that we have to fill. Our job is to sow the seeds. I sowed, Apollos watered, but who gave the increase, Paul said? God gave the increase. If it was up to you, we'd be in trouble. But since it's not up to you, even a failed proclamation of the gospel is looked upon with a smile by the Lord and he's rewarding you for it. Well done, Paul. Well done. Nobody listened. <laughs> they, they threw rocks at me. They were going to pull me to pieces. I, I'm, I'm under arrest here. Yeah, I know. But you proclaimed the facts about me and they heard the message. You have a mandate and a message. And it's God's business to save souls, not yours. Doesn't that take the pressure off? It's not your job to close the deal. <laughs> it's your job to sow the seed. And sometimes one person sows seed and then the next person comes and waters. And every now and then you get to be the one that gets to reap the harvest. You get to pull the fruit off the tree and put it in the basket. Everyone is different, but everyone has the same responsibility. 2 Timothy 4 verse 5 says, do the work of an evangelist. I'm really not much of an evangelist. Neither was Timothy, but Paul said, do the work of an evangelist. And 1 Peter 3 says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. If you ain't done it with gentleness and respect, you've done it wrong. And you should go back and you should apologize and you should try that again. 
I don't know when the church lost this emphasis. I remember growing up, it seemed like everybody was talking about evangelism and missions and the methods and the opportunities and the ways to do it. And there was training and there were books that were popular and just we, we lost it somewhere. I don't, I'm not going to blame anybody other than ourselves. But we got to get it back. Talk about, I don't know if I have any hope for this country. Jesus is the hope for this country. Jesus changes hearts. Jesus gets right to the, the center of what's going on. Jesus can save a culture or a country or a situation without even changing the situation. He changes the people that are in it. And now all of a sudden it's okay. If you agree that the scripture teaches these things, that you have a mandate to proclaim the facts about Jesus and you cannot get knocked off of that, that platform, you must do it. Maybe you've got to repent for it. And say, Lord, I know there's people I've got to share the gospel to. Or, Lord, you sent me out to share the gospel with them, and all I did was argue with them about whatever issue you were arguing about. And maybe you've just left this up to other people because I'm shy and God would understand. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It is not. And if you yourself have not believed the facts about Jesus and repented of your sins, then I've got good news for you. Jesus can forgive you of your sins, give you eternal life by what he's done on the cross. And when he comes back, it'll be a day of joy for you rather than a day of fear.